Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass effect, lyrical oxidation, your irrelevant mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuranium, if y'all was uranium, molecules, spontaneous combustion, bam. Law of definite proportion, gaining weight, I'm every element around. This is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barber DeGraff. I am here the second day of Geek Girl Con, and I'm interviewing a fellow astrophysicist. And I'm going to let her introduce herself and what she does with outreach. I'm Dr. Lisa Will. I'm a professor of physics and astronomy at San Diego City College, and I'm the resident astronomer at the Ruben H. Fleet Science Center in Balboa Park. And I am committed to doing outreach. I do a monthly talk at a local brewery. I do the planetarium shows at Balboa Park, and we also have a planetarium at our college. And I just did a planetarium show there this past week for our campus community. Um, when you told me that right before we started recording, I talk a lot about myself on this podcast. I'm very egotistical. But the reason I'm an astronomer is because of Reuben H. Fleet. Yes. Um, I, when I was a child, uh, my parents did not go to college, but they loved like space and stuff like that. So my dad took me to Reuben H. Fleet. I think the first time I went was probably younger than I can remember. But what, what I do remember, I was like eight or nine. And I would go there every summer um, when I went to go visit my father. So... That was the reason I became an astronomer. So I don't know if you're from that region. You know, I'm not originally from San Diego, but I, uh, I'm a native Californian, so we used to visit San Diego a lot as a kid. And I will tell the people at the Fleet Center that you said this because it will thrill them because there's a lot of people who uh, have been there for decades because they are so committed to the job. So hearing that uh, somebody who went there as a kid became an astronomer, an astrophysicist, will thrill them. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I, I, that was one of the first planetariums I've ever, I ever went to, and Balboa Park is amazing. And, and um, so I, before we go into outreach, I would want to talk, and I like to let my listeners kind of hear stories of how people became scientists. And my listeners have heard my story many, many times, but how, how did you get this interest in science, and why are you here at Geek Girl Con? Okay, 100% honesty. Um, my interest in science came from Star Trek. Um, yes! <laughs> I actually remember as a child looking up the planet Vulcan in an encyclopedia and being incredibly disappointed that there was no planet Vulcan. It's like, what is this, some Roman god of the forge? Where did this come from? <laughs> And that was how I learned that we actually hadn't been going into deep space and that we did not have contact with other alien cultures. And it was incredibly disappointing to think that space had been in our grasp and then to find out that it wasn't at the age of four or whatever it was at the time. So uh, I just started flipping through the encyclopedia and going to other things like planets and stuff like that. And so I actually became interested in astronomy due to my love of science fiction at an early age. And then got a subscription to Astronomy Magazine when I was a young kid. And the pretty pictures, uh, you know, David Malin's pretty pictures probably really had a, a heavy impact on me from Astronomy Magazine. And so I cannot remember not wanting to do astronomy. 
So I'm pretty lucky that way. And uh, this is my fourth year at Geek Girl Con, uh, doing science outreach panels. Uh, when I first heard that there was a convention, because I go to San Diego Comic Con every year, so wow. you know. How do you get tickets every year? My husband is uh, my husband is a fantasy and science fiction author, so he gets in as a professional, and professionals get to bring in a guest. And I've told him if he ever loses his professional status, I will divorce him. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so he, he might listen to this podcast. That's okay. He knows. Okay. He knows. Um, but uh, when I heard that there was a con that was devoted to uh, making young women comfortable with their geekdom, I was thrilled and eager to participate. So I think I've been attending since their third con. So w when you said that you got a subscription to um, Astronomy Magazine, um, so as a child, I went to Ruben H. Fleet over the summers um, in San Diego. And when I came back to Washington, I like... I think I was 14, I, I got subscription to um, um, Astronomy Magazine, and I would look at um, really the moons of Jupiter were the, were the things that really, really inspired me. And um, learning about Europa, and there might be like a frozen water world, and, you know, thinking about the movie Waterworld with Kevin Costner, and just like, <laughs> oh my God, you know, like these, these, could, these things could happen. Um, there could be these other worlds. So you are here on a panel talking about Star Wars and worlds in Star Wars. So can you tell us a little bit about that, and how does that relate to maybe any um, research you did in undergrad or in grad school? Uh the reason why I like to do talks about the worlds of Star Wars is that it's actually a really great outreach topic. And so I've done talks on the worlds of Star Wars, the worlds of Star Trek. Um, and the reason why we did it here is we had a lot of astronomers actually attending the con. And uh, so we thought, what a great way to draw people in. We had a full house uh, at our panel. And what I love is that there are solar system analogs to many of these worlds. You know, I can show you a picture of Hoth, and I can show you a picture of Europa or Enceladus. Um, and then we can, you know, complain about monoclimates on large planets, and, you know, no one ever addresses surface gravities, and Starkiller Base really annoys us all. And yeah, we... <laughs> I, I, so I saw on Twitter there was some sort of comment about Starkiller Base. Please elaborate on that controversy. All right, so Star Killer Base, I usually don't talk about in talks because I have nothing good to say about it. However, um, when asked, uh, first of all, a planet's not going to be able to absorb the power of its sun and then regurgitate that back out and destroy anything. Um, there are some issues there, probably too numerous to go into in a short podcast. Um, and then also the idea of being able to convert an entire planet into a weapon and nobody noticing. I also have, yeah. So Starkiller Base was hugely problematic, and hopefully they'll stop making Death Star analogs or other Death Stars and, and just go on from there. My, my, favorite, my favorite is when, you know, it starts ripping apart, and then you see, like, full-on trees, and then very, very... Not that deep, right? Very close to the surface, there's, like, the metal. I'm like, how how did these trees, like, <laughs> grow when there's metal, like, yeah. less than a meter underneath them? Like, how did that happen? It didn't. <laughs> it, it didn't. Let's just face it. It didn't. <laughs> it didn't. Um, oh. So g give us good examples. Good examples. Um, I am obsessed with Star Wars Rebels and the uh, planet Jakku that our hero, Ezra, not Jakku, the, the planet um, Lothal that our hero uh, Ezra is from. Uh, when he and Kanan went to look for a Jedi temple, uh, they went to a different part of the planet and they showed Aurora up in the sky. And it was like the first time I can remember in Star Wars that you could learn something physically about a planet from something that they showed. It's like, oh, this planet has a magnetic field. And so it was just for me that I really liked that. Um, also from Rebels, there's Malachor, which they showed a huge underground cavern. 
And there are places on Earth where we have huge underground caverns that have their own microclimates in them. And so uh, just lovely stuff. The the Clone Wars and uh, Rebels have been doing kind of a better job with the diversity of planets uh, than the movies have. Uh, they, they are cartoons. Maybe it is a little <laughs> bit easier to animate. Um, because, yes, one of the things we are limited by is having to film on the Earth. I know, I know. If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barber DeGraff. Today we're at Geek Girl Con interviewing astrophysicist Lisa Will. You were talking about um, Star Trek, and, and as our listeners know, I'm a big next gen Star Trek fan. Um, however, um, next gen and many of the Star Trek uh, series, shows, uh, movies do not have a great diversity of, of planetary surfaces. Um, it basically looks like California for some reason. Particularly Vasquez Rocks, if you go back to the original series. Um, <laughs> what I find interesting, uh, Star Wars and Star Trek both do some similar storytelling in terms of the planets that they show. Our heroes are always from planets that look like the Earth. Um, and, uh, you know, they. Uh, I, when I did my talk on the worlds of Star Trek, I discovered that in Next Gen, they made sure that uh, the the atmosphere of the Klingon homeworld Kronos looked a little noxious because they wanted you to like not see uh, Klingons as coming from an Earth-like planet, even though obviously it has to be an M-type planet because they breathe the same sort of atmosphere as we do. So there's a lot of... Worf should have been coughing all the time on the Enterprise if the atmosphere on Kronos was that way. So uh, the the storytelling, I actually like to look at the storytelling devices. Uh, in the Star Wars universe, uh, seats of power like Coruscant and Hosnian Prime and so on, they're always shown as having cities on them that you can see at night. There's always an, a sort of canonical Earth at night sort of shot for those worlds. Uh, but the uh, places that our heroes tend to come from are places like Jakku and Tatooine that are these, Arizona. that are, um, yes, near Yuma, Arizona in some places. Uh, these uh, sort of back, they, they, they tell the tale of a backwater planet by not showing them have these large cities. And so I actually do find the, the storytelling the planet's diversity or lack thereof as storytelling device is really interesting in these shows. Yeah. Can you, can you think of any um, planets in either Star Wars or St Star Trek or any nerd, you know, um, I don't know, um, what would you say, series or, or f folklore um, that have anything like Europa? Because I can't actually think of that. Um, I can't think of anything like Europa or, or Enceladus. Well, the closest thing would be something like a hoth, but then we wouldn't expect to see things like wampa ice creatures or tauntauns having evolved um, unless they were not always uh, icy worlds. And, you know, one of the things that you could ask yourself is, were we seeing hoth during an ice age? Um, is, you know, like Earth went through an ice age where it had a lot more ice covering the entire surface and wasn't always the nice climate that we have now. Um, we haven't seen anything proposed as a Europa, although I believe Naboo is supposed to have a water core. You can't really have a water 
core, though, and have higher density materials above it. However, I have learned from some of my Astro 101 students that they often use core just to mean interior. And so it could just have been uh, misspeaking um, or common uses versus the specific uses that usage that astronomers uh, demand for that term. You're giving so much credit to the the creators of Star Wars and Star Trek. You're like, maybe they didn't mean core, you know. But um, I wanted to talk about how um, how did you get into being on these various panels? Um, are, are you an astrobiologist? Are you an astrogeologist? Did you study geology and astronomy? Or is this just something you love and you've learned a lot more post-PhD? My research was actually doing computer simulations of the properties of interstellar dust grains and the way they affect ultraviolet light. So no one ever asks about that during a panel, I'll be honest. Um, however, teaching Astro 101 means you have to know everything about the universe and you have to be prepared to answer a question about quasars and supermassive black holes and the fate of the universe to, hey, did you, did you hear about that mission that just blasted off to go to the asteroid? I mean, you're the... Especially with social media, you know, Twitter, uh, Facebook, these students are actually seeing more stuff, a broader variety of stuff now. And so Astro 101 really demands that you be able to answer stuff about everything. And then the way I got into going to cons was actually uh, when I was an undergrad at UCLA, uh, I was in their science fiction and fantasy club and we would go to the local L.A. cons. And uh, so a few years ago, I started doing uh, panels at Phoenix Comic Con. And I've been on panels at San Diego Comic-Con, and then I've been on panels here, and I really enjoy it. It's a great way of doing public outreach to a hungry audience. You, you know you have a, uh, a group that wants to be scientifically literate, that uh, maybe um, is scientifically literate and wants to learn more. Uh, I, sometimes people berate the public for being... Um, scientifically illiterate or scientifically uneducated. And I look at the public as being hungry, but they don't know where to go get information. So if they can actually go somewhere where it's advertised, you have a panel here that's all astronomers. Come ask your astronomy questions. They show up. And those astronomers are are willing to talk about pop culture as well. Yes, because we're all nerds. Yeah, because we're all geeks. Yes. I think if you actually ask most astronomers how they got into the field, there are going to be a lot of nerdy origin stories for us. We are all nerds. We are all geeks. Uh, we uh, Several of us missed out on having the Apollo missions be our inspiration. So what was the next thing we saw? We saw Star Trek and syndication. And, and then Next Gen and uh, maybe Star Wars got you interested, too. And so there's a lot of us whose origin is going to be, yeah, I'm just a geek that uh, loves this stuff. So um, before we, we finish, I would like to talk about what mission are you most excited about then that's coming up or maybe a mission you would like NASA to do um, in relation to um, looking at other worlds, other habitable worlds. In our own solar system, I'm still uh, amazed by the images we got back of Pluto from the New Horizons spacecraft. <laughs> None of us expected it. Yeah. None of us expected it. We did not expect to find a geologically active world. We did not expect to find young surfaces. So uh, that's one of the things that exploration teaches us is as much as we think we know, it tells us we don't know as much right. as we'd like. 
And so what I'd really love to do, and I know this isn't a very popular suggestion, I would love to go back to the moons of Uranus and Neptune, the ones that look like Karen around Pluto. And we only went, flew by them very quickly with the Voyager 2 spacecraft. And I'd love to see those more up close because it's the moons in the solar system where all the interesting stuff is. Um, in terms of missions, uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what New Horizons sees next because it will be going by another Kuiper Belt object in, within the next few years. And then the OSIRIS-REx mission that just launched last month, that will be a sample return mission from an asteroid. That's awesome. And I'm looking very much forward to seeing that. Um, the James Webb Space Telescope should be able to detect atmospheres around some extrasolar planets, they're hoping. And as soon as we find oxygen in large amounts in any of those atmospheres, we'll know we're not alone. So that's awesome, too. That's so exciting. Um, is there any anything else you'd like to talk about that, like, maybe some of the, the biggest questions or the most common questions that come up in these um, worlds of Star Trek or Star Wars, what, what are the biggest questions that come up that you get like over and over and over again? Um, one of the biggest questions we get about worlds of Star Wars uh, is whether or not you could actually have a Tatooine. Can you have a world around two stars? And now because of uh, observations from the Kepler spacecraft, we can say yes. And look, here are several examples, including a Kepler-16b. Um, and so what we haven't found yet is a terrestrial planet, a rocky world that would be in sort of a Tatooine-like orbit where Luke could hear the lovely music playing as the binary stars set. But um, we could, we're actually finding these worlds around binary stars. And so, yes, Tatooine can exist. And that uh, tends to surprise a lot of people. Um, I guess as astronomers, we kind of take for granted that we know so many systems are actually binary star systems, but uh, uh, most people don't. You know, so many, of the, many of the stars whose names you know, if you take a look at them with a good enough telescope, go break up into multiple stars and uh, that's just not common knowledge so yeah the tattooing question is probably the most prominent one If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barber DeGraff. Today we're talking about the worlds of Star Wars with astrophysicist Lisa Will. Let's go back to outreach for a second. So you you do planetarium shows is and and you what other what other um, like vehicles of outreach do you use to um, try to help, like you said, give the public somewhere to get this information from? Because of my affiliation with the Ruben H. Fleet Science Center, I get to do radio and TV news frequently. When there's a big story breaking, I get asked to do that, which is not something I ever would have anticipated doing in my life. Um, but there's a couple of specific places where I've done talks that maybe people aren't aware of that might be avenues to do it. And actually, today we're doing a STEM outreach panel at four that will talk about some of these things. Okay. But uh, uh, in Vista, California, which is in San North San Diego County, 
Uh, I do talks, uh, monthly talks at a brewery called Wavelength Brewing Company. And they're just about a year old. And the owner, uh, Hans, his whole goal with that brewery is to make science accessible. And so when you walk in, uh, it's NASA TV or space videos up. You will never see sports on, on the TV. If it's trivia night, it's space trivia night. They show Cosmos. And they do science talks weekly. And so uh, uh, I got involved because he contacted the Ruben H. Fleet and said, do you know a scientist who could do a talk? And so I did the very first public talk there. And it's really, really popular. That brew, uh, that brewery is full for these talks. And so one of my chemistry colleagues does talks there. Um, it got mentioned in a list of breweries in the L.A. Times uh, recently wow. uh, because of our talks. And so uh, so uh, I know here in Seattle they do astronomy on tap, and that's very popular. Uh, so those are those venues are proving to be really really great uh, outreach vehicles for astronomers and other scientists, um, and then uh, IDW Publishing when is based in San Diego, and when they opened up their new offices in a place that was more accessible, they they they're in a place called Liberty Station, which was an old uh, uh, marine base, and so they've converted the barracks now into shops and art galleries and things like that. Uh, they have devoted, IDW has devoted their first floor to being what they call the San Diego Comic Art Gallery with rotating exhibits and stuff like that. So right now they have Burke Breathed's, uh Bloom County. So there's lots of the original Bloom County art up right now. And they have done a Star Wars one. Uh, and so uh, I participated in a Worlds of Star Trek panel there uh, this past August with another astrophysicist from UCSD, uh, two Star Trek comics writers and the editor Sarah Gatos of the uh, IDW's editor for Star Trek comics and so they're doing a couple of different outreach things their next one is the science of Orphan Black because they do the Orphan Black comic and they're going to have writers of the comics and local people from San Diego's biotech industries so um, there are opportunities like this and I think more and more places are realizing that if they have a science tie-in and they advertise an event people will show up that's that's amazing. Like these are really good ideas that I will try to bring back to Billingham. <laughs> They're doing a big science on the screen push um, this this next month. So I asked this these two questions to all of my guests um, this at this con, and one of them was, if you had a superhero power, um, what would it be, and what would be your origin story? Because we're we're at a superhero con, you know what I mean? Like we're going to talk about this. Um, and the second question was. Um, how is your field portrayed in in pop culture? And can you give me like a good example and a bad example? And how do you feel about those? My superhero power would be invisibility. And the origin would be, I just wish I could be invisible. Like I don't, I'm, I'm very shy. Yes, I am an introvert whose entire life is public speaking, whether it's in my classes or in my outreach. And so I tend to go home and crash on the couch with my husband and my puppies and hide and so um yeah i would wish for invisibility and i would get it because i just wished for it so much that somehow the lightning bolt would hit me and give me that invisibility power um how are astrophysicists portrayed on screen i can name a couple of female astrophysicists we had jane foster from thor um yeah um and uh the jodie foster character from contact Scientists often get portrayed as mad scientists. Um, 
And so I am eager to see any sort of positive portrayal of scientists like Cosima from Orphan Black. Uh, even though she's not an astrophysicist, she's there doing the work and she succeeds by working hard. Um, nobody ever shows people getting ahead by writing grant proposals for 30 hours a week. Um, so science can't actually, if, if we really wanted to talk about how science is actually done, it would never be effectively portrayed on screen because it would be too dull, right? But typically we don't see women portrayed as astrophysicists, although we can name a couple of notable exceptions. Um, Oftentimes, what astronomers do is portrayed very poorly. Uh, there was those movies, D Deep Impact and Armageddon. They came out in pretty much the same year. And Deep Impact started off by an astronomer determining that that comet was coming towards the Earth by looking, as far as I could tell, from one still image in an observatory where all the lights were on. And that was the opening scene, and I screamed, and my husband's like, we're just not going to movies in public again. We'll just wait till stuff comes out. Is there anything you would like to say to scientists or people who are studying science, maybe in undergrad or grad school, who want to communicate their science better? What, thing, what sentence or phrase or advice would you give them to better communicate that science to the public? To all of the graduate students at universities who we all know are doing the heavy lifting in the university's outreach, thank you. And to all of their advisors who are upset by the amount of outreach that their grad students are doing, shut up. Uh, I think that would be my biggest bit of advice to both groups. Um, because uh, science outreach is important. And in astronomy, we're lucky because we've got pretty Hubble Space Telescope images and Cassini images and New Horizons images. We can actually take our product and show that to the public and the public can tell what's going on. But if you're, you know, studying molecular chemistry, it's harder to get the public on your side. So for the, all of those students in the STEM fields where maybe they don't have it as easy, quite frankly, as the astronomers do, uh, keep doing what you're doing. Your outreach is incredibly, incredibly important. That, that was beautiful. I love, I love it. And thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking to you. And uh, good luck with all the other panels thank and you. talks. Thank you very much. It was great. This is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barber DeGraff. I'm here the second day of Geek Girl Con, and I'm interviewing a fellow astrophysicist. And I'm going to let her introduce herself. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Nierman. I am a postdoctoral fellow at Arizona State University in the School of Earth and Space Exploration. I'm currently funded by the National Science Foundation. I research colliding galaxies, in particular, a collision between a dwarf galaxy and a spiral galaxy. I look for star formation that happens not in the center of the collision, but out at the edges, out in the debris from that collision. And sometimes you can get up to 50% of the star formation can happen out in that debris. My PhD was in globular clusters. I dealt with um, elliptical galaxies, so not the ones that you're <laughs> dealing with. 
And globular clusters are out in the regions, and I, I studied one galaxy, NGC 1530. I was reading your work that has the H1 lines or H1 regions, and so it was very weird that it had some star activity, but it was also old and had these globular clusters near them, so... Right, and actually, um, my previous work was with major mergers, so two spiral galaxies colliding, which then become an elliptical galaxy, that then in that collision, they would make what would then later become globular clusters. I wanted to talk about, like, why you're here at Geek Girl Con, and then tell me kind of your origin story. Like, how did you get into astronomy? And, and our listeners can't see this, but you'll see it in our pictures. She's wearing some awesome outfit. She has a, a very cool Think Geek bracelet that lights up and has stars. And then you have a nice lightsaber dress. So I can kind of tell. I don't know if I'm stereotyping. You might be a geek. Yes, I am. <laughs> yes. So you can kind of tell me about how you got into science and if pop culture kind of affected that. So yes to definitely pop culture did affect that. I was interested in science kind of my older brother is a biochemist and so he he taught me some science he's 11 years older than I am and he would help me look through rocks at a microscope and you know find a cool rock and that kind of stuff but um some of my colleagues I didn't want to I didn't know what I wanted to be went through a few things when I was growing up but in my freshman year of high school um my earth science teacher uh sister Martha Ann was just a really, really good teacher. It was kind of the first science class where I felt really challenged. And a lot of that was that she had actually gone on a lot of field trips. Um, I'm from Pennsylvania, but she had taken field trips around the West and had gotten to be able to see a lot of the geology and the, and the rocks and stuff. And so she was able to share that with us. And she also did a unit on astronomy. And one of the really cool activities she had was we had a random pattern of dots on a piece of paper and we had to come up with a constellation out of those dots but then the piece added was we had to type the stars what type of stars were those in the constellation and did we have any deep sky objects and you know like like, galaxies and all that and so it, it brought that stories can connect to the night sky And um, from that, I got very interested in stories of the constellations. And um, also at the same time, Carl Sagan was writing in Parade Magazine. And I just fell in love with his writing. And wait, one can actually be an astronomer? That that's a career. So are you here at Geek Girl Con as kind of a science communicator then, like like Carl Sagan? Yes, I am. (laughs) A A lot of people say that astronomy is like the gateway science. Um, that's what it's 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 heard. When I was a kid, I loved astronomy and I kind of fell into physics. One of the you were talking about geology. I have I have friends that do um, Marsology is what Melissa Rice she works for um, NASA and um, also works at Western Washington University. Is a friend of the podcast has been on many many shows, but she talks about how she really really enjoyed you know she enjoys talking about the geology or the Marsology and and that link with astronomy. But for me, I really loved Europa. Like that was the thing that got me. What about you? Um, Europa is really cool, and I think it's captured a lot of imaginations. Pluto has always been my favorite planet, though. <laughs> really? So, so New Horizons was like your thing. New Horizons was amazing. In fact, last year I was able to uh, give a colloquium talk up at Lowell Observatory, and I got to go to their uh, morning coffee where uh, the 
Pluto sci the Pluto scientist actually got to explain the new images that had just come down, which was I mean to be there where Pluto had been discovered and, and hear about that was was a highlight. I, I think people really truly don't understand what we didn't know about that that celestial object. <laughs> but um, when those images came in and that heart shape and and we had um, here on Spark Science we had a geophysicist talking about what those different features could be because they didn't know at that moment it was like very brand new so. It was, it's life-changing, really. What I wanted to ask you about is how did you get into science communication? Because I know that some of your project involves that. So can you tell us something about that? Right. Uh, when I was an undergraduate at Penn State, they have a planetarium, and they needed volunteers to help run planetarium shows. And since one of my interests has been constellations and finding them, I was able to transition that right in. And um, what I really loved was actually looking at the stories of the constellations from different cultures. So not just what we've inherited from, from Greeks, but um, Native Americans and Egyptian and African and, and all of those. And so um, for my project now, what I'm doing is bringing those stories um, into, we have a portable planetarium, the Star Lab, that I bring out to local groups. And those are inner city uh, Phoenix, which... Um, being in the Arizona area, uh, mainly Hispanic populations, as well as out to, um, we have a lot of Native American um, communities around our area. And in fact, in two weeks, I'm going to Salt River Elementary, which is on the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community. So do you work with um, the Native American communities and learn more about their their stories to kind of like, do they help you with that? Um, so there's actually um, already... One of the, the pieces from Star Lab is there is a Navajo cylinder that has the Navajo constellations on it. Oh, wow. And um, one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to bring is not just let's tell the stories, but also to be respectful of the culture. And so with the Navajo constellations and the Navajo stories, um, they ask that you only tell those stories in the wintertime. Oh, really? And so okay. because that is when, uh, when Coyote is not out. And so they don't want Coyote to hear those stories. So, so you, you must have some liaison that helps you with, with like kind of being respectful of the culture and learning more about that. Or do you just go out and meet people and learn about these things? Um, so with the, with the Navajo um, culture, there's actually um, several resources. One uh, that was actually published um, through uh, Lowell Observatory. Oh, good. Um, so there is a partnership. So, so there, yeah, so there is um, some partnerships. And then also uh, we have uh, partnerships with the Salt River um, community. Although some of the communities are, um, they prefer to keep their stories uh, private. And so um, right. learning about the uh, the give and take of that as well. Yeah, so. no, that's that's super important. And, and in Northwest here, I would I would love to have more um, partnerships and learn more about other cultures because I also I also worked in the planetarium and um, and my the the guy the man who trained me would learn um, he was part Native American and he learned a lot of stories and he wanted to share those as well. I think that's super important that we are sharing those things. That is the program you're working with right now with Lowell, but is there any other science communication that you that you do that's like kind of like that or associated? I've also been on panels at Phoenix Comic-Con um, as well. And um, so bringing some of that actually up here to Geek Girl Con. Um, so we, we did an astrobiology of Star Wars. That, that was a fabulous panel. Um, uh, a fellow um, astronomer, a friend of mine, Jackie, was also on it, um, who's a longtime Star Wars fan. 
as well as geochemist and a ecologist. And so bringing all of those together, we actually um, got into uh, how the exoplanets that we've been discovering and how those can relate to um, various worlds of Star Wars. Uh, Like there is a Tatooine kind of thing. Right. And um, actually, we're going to be talking about that uh, this afternoon um, at the Worlds of Star Wars uh, panel. Um, So awesome. uh, But the piece we added uh, with the astrobiology was about ecosystems on these on these planets. And so for some of the planets, we actually uh, uh, the ecologists built a little uh, like food pyramid of, of who would eat who and how they would live and that kind of stuff. So like a food chain. That is so amazing. Like a food web. Like a food web. Yeah. yeah. If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barber-DeGraff, and today we're at Geek GirlCon interviewing astrophysicist Karen Nierman. So I was going to actually ask that if you were talking to other scientists. So now let's pretend our listeners are, you know, undergrads or grad students or even, even you know, scientists with higher degrees, but they want to communicate science. What would you, what kind of advice would you give them? Um, I think part of it is um, to know who your audience is. Um, if you're coming to to a con like Geek Girl Con, you need to be accessible to a, a, a range of people. Um, you may have uh, people who are amateur astronomers in the audience, but you also may have people who have a passing interest. And so, to be able to accommodate um, that I, those ideas, if you um, if you happen to go out and talk to a local astronomy club, for example, you can probably be a little bit more technical. Can you tell me something about your own science that you're doing? Um, not just what the outreach that you're doing, but what what's the actual science? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, with these uh, galaxy collisions, so I call them minor mergers. So the galaxies are merging, and minor meaning it's a dwarf galaxy with a spiral galaxy. Um, major would be two big galaxies, like two big spiral galaxies. Um, like the Milky Way and the Andromeda. Right. The Milky Way and the Andromeda um, are going to collide in a, about three billion years. Yeah, stick around. It'll be a great show. Yeah. Uh, so what my research is, is I do uh, multi-wavelength observations. So not just taking pictures in optical colors, which I, which I have done, um, but also to get uh, data in uh, infrared wavelengths as well as radio and microwave and all of that. And then all of those pieces I can put together to determine how, much, how many stars are forming and compare that to the materials that, are, that we form stars out of. So I'm measuring molecular gas and uh, hydrogen gas and adding those up. Those are the materials that we form stars up, and we compare those to how many stars have formed. Right, because so, we can't see that gas in optical wavelengths. Right. So we, um, so I use a lot of different telescopes. Um, so I've uh, gotten data from the Vatican Observatory Telescope. The, they're, they're super awesome. The VAT. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, as well as um, telescopes on uh, Kitt Peak that are the microwave, uh, the millimeter telescopes, actually. And from the Very Large Array, the radio, big radio telescope in New Mexico, which was featured in the movie Contact. It was, and when she was listening to the radio waves with headphones, because that's really inaccurate, listeners. <laughs> yeah. Fun story. I uh, 
I saw that movie in the theater yeah. uh, right before I went um, to my first observatory, uh, <laughs> which was actually the Green Bank Observatory, which is a radio observatory. And we actually got to do radio observations. The funny thing was, was they actually had a speaker in there so you could turn it on and listen. What? Right. Which is like, I mean. <laughs> I've never seen that. Exactly. Well, it was a very, it's a, it was one of the first tele, radio telescopes built at that site. And okay. so very old. Um, and it's, uh, they even had, at that time, there wasn't a computer hooked up to it. What? And so you had to do everything like switches and, and stuff like that. And even still, I was back there last summer, which was total blast revisiting roots yeah. situation. And they still have, um, it's a pen on a piece of mm -hmm. paper that draws out the signal that you're getting. Right. Which is right. very much, I mean, for our listeners that don't know what we're talking, we're like, like the, uh, like um, an earthquake kind of, you know, mm -hmm. meter. But nowadays, everything is all on computers and you collect that and all that. So it's very old school. Um, but back then, yeah, they had a speaker. And so we, we were all total, we wanted to be, you know, Jodie Foster. <laughs> and, and, and listen, so we, we turned it on and, and hope that we'd hear a signal. So I have just been put in my place. Like, it, that, was, that was real. That was real for a second. Yeah. For, in, one, in one place. In one place. In one place. So I, I asked you before we started recording about um, how... I kind of want to, I like sharing stories. You were saying you love sharing sh stories and that's what you did as, you know, being younger in a planetarium and presenting that stuff. Um, here at Spark Science, our tagline is um, sharing stories of human curiosity. So is there a story that you have from your work or from um, your, the science communication that you do that would um, kind of like inspire people or maybe not inspire them? I don't know. A favorite story that you like to tell? Um, so one of my favorites is... Um so one of the most uh, iconic images of a galaxy collision is actually the antenna galaxies. So there's a, there's a famous Hubble Space Telescope image. Um, it actually uh, came out in uh, 1996. And um, my mom would actually cut articles out of the newspaper and send them to me because that was the first year I was in undergrad, just move away from home. So as little care packages. And so she sent that picture to me and I hung it on my dorm room wall. And then um, my senior year, I realized, not that I didn't know, but just the connection was put together. Of, I looked over and I'm like, there's the picture my mom sent me my freshman year. And I am now studying that galaxy. Wow. And so we had Hubble Space Telescope images of uh, the tidal tail, the debris. So away from that particular center region, but out in the, out in the tail. Wow. And so that's what, and, and that you, was, that was part of my senior thesis. And that was your revelation looking yeah. at that picture. That yeah. is so amazing. And then, and then sort of the, the epilogue to that is that a couple of years ago, one of the astronauts that uh, fixed Hubble. So people may, may remember that uh, when Hubble went up, it actually had a problem with the, with the lens, uh, with the mirror and it was ground to exactly wrong, but exactly. And so, um, they, the, the first servicing mission of the astronauts, they had to put in a correction. And uh, one of the astronauts that installed that instrument that took the picture that was on my wall, I got to meet that astronaut. That is so amazing. So I'm going to ask you two questions, and this is my last two questions. One is, um, I've been asking everyone here at Geek Girl Con because it's a, we're all superheroes here. Um, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? And what would be your origin story? 
And then also my, my last question is, how is your science, you know, astrophysics, um, science communication even, portrayed in pop culture? And is that good or bad? What kind of example would you like to discuss? Honestly, Jodie Foster's portrayal of Ellie Arroway in Contact is, is one of my favorites. Thor's girlfriend, though, right. is also an astrophysicist. Right. Right. Who wouldn't yeah. want to go out with Thor? Exactly. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, the super, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. Yeah, superpower and your orange orange story. So uh, I interviewed somebody else and they gave me this super deep answer and I was like, I'd like to fly. I'm like, I was like, I got, I got nothing. Yeah. I mean, mine would be, my, my superpower would be teleportation because just to be able to go from one place to another without like having to buy a plane ticket. I don't mind sitting on the plane. Like that was, that's fine. But well, I, th I thought this was more scientific. Like you actually were going to use it to see those exoplanets that you're dealing with. Like, and then you could go there and like actually... Oh. Oh, I totally, so, so the exoplanets, but also even uh, the galaxies that I'm studying, like, to go and fly around them. Because we, we only have the pictures, and we don't know what's happening in three dimensions. Did you ever watch Star Trek Voyager? A couple of episodes. I'm, a, I'm an original series. Oh, I'm a next gen. <laughs> All right. Well, I was going to say that I think uh, I think a lot of our um, a lot of people don't really get that when we're talking about other exoplanets and all that stuff. We're talking about our own galaxy. You know, we're not talking about an external galaxy. Like the galaxies you're talking about are so much further away, right? Right. So, right. I don't yeah. Know if you come up with that misconception, um, actually, we do, um, and um, so that that's that's part of what I I'm kind of currently. Uh, working with with my with my outreach and and what I have been for a while is I study galaxies and so how is a galaxy different than a solar system? I actually I blow my um, students' minds when I tell them about how the word galaxy, our idea of what a galaxy is, it wasn't even concrete until past the 1920s. Like right. in the in the mid 1920s is when we finally understood what a galaxy was. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it's we right. thought it was all the universe. Right. Yeah. yeah. We we didn't know if they were nearby like in our milky way or or external and there was actually a great debate about yes. it so i i love talking about that great debate If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barber de Graff, and today we're talking about the worlds of Star Wars with astrophysicist Karen Nierman. So the great debate that um, Karen and I are talking about is um, in in 1920, Herbert Curtis and Harlow Shapley um, had this. It wasn't really a debate; it was like kind of like a conference, like here. So do you want to kind of like take it from there? Um, so I mean, it was what I recall is just that it was whether spiral nebula as they were called at the time yeah. so spiral galaxies that we call now were were they part of our universe our, is what they called it yeah. yeah our milky way our universe um or were they whole other entities like us but just far away yeah and the philosopher Kant had written about these island universes. And um, there was this debate and Harlow Shapley was like they're definitely not 
um, outside of our little universe. They're inside. They're because um, if they were outside, that would be way too large of a distance. Like he did calculations, and he didn't believe his own calculations of these these variable stars. And and then Herbert Curtis was like, "No, they totally are other universes." Um, but they aren't as far as you said. Like, your your numbers are wrong. And it turned out that they were both kind of wrong. <laughs> that um, that the, the, numbers, um, the numbers were right. They were pretty, well, close to right. They were very far away. And that um, Harlow, his, um, he just couldn't believe that they were, so, like, the universe was that big. Right. And they were, and they were both wrong. Oh. Right. I mean, and, and Galileo encountered that, too, as well. Um, when he turned his telescope to the Milky Way, you know, we look up and um, discover that it's not just a cloud, but it breaks up into, into thousands and thousands of stars. Yeah. And that the stars had to be so much further away than we thought. Well, and, and it's so it's so crazy because we went from this like geocentric universe of Earth being in the center, and then we we kind of went to okay, the sun is in the center, and then when we were talking about galaxies in our universe, we did actually thought we were in the center too, and it was Char- uh, it was um, Harlow Shapley that actually mapped globular clusters, which I study, and he mapped them out, and he was like, why are they all shifted? We must not be at the center. So that was another like human leap of where we're located in our universe. Right. Yeah. That's one of um, why I love teaching. Um, my students about the history of astronomy and how we've gone through these revolutions in astronomy um, and how that actually, that sense of place, where we are in the universe, how that affects us. Yeah, and and how sense of identity really affects you, you know, and like, where do I belong? It all all comes back, even, it is is even in science. Yeah. Yeah. And um, one of my favorite things, though, um, is that sometimes people will think, oh, well, you know, now science is so, we know all this stuff, and so it makes it cold, except um, the fact that we are made in this, our, our atoms, our carbon, our oxygen, our iron in our, in, our, in our blood, in our bones, are all made in the centers of stars and in those explosions of stars. So we are connected to the universe at a fundamental level. Actually gives me, just, you know, tingles and hope and... I love it. We're all made of star stuff, right? Yeah, all made of star stuff, yes. <laughs> so you were saying that the outreach that you do, you also work on these hands-on activities. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, so I noticed that there was a lack of hands-on activities, particularly relating to galaxies. There's a lot of solar system models out there, which is great. I love the um, the pocket um, solar system that you can do that we, we talk about a lot where you can have a long string of the, uh, what is that, tape paper from, like, the receipts? And you, like, you lay out where the planets are because a lot of people think they're all evenly spaced, but they are not evenly spaced in solar system. And I've also even seen one that's the toilet paper solar system where the the scale, you know, is based on the length of a toilet, square of toilet paper. But there isn't anything with galaxies, is what you're saying. Right. And so um, what, one of the ones that I developed is actually a um, Plato model of the Milky Way the Andromeda Galaxy and our nearest uh, neighbors as well, um, the Large and Small Magellanic Clouds, and I also include um, M33. So those are all members of our local group of galaxies. And so that's because um, one of my favorite uh, solar system activities is a Plato model of the planets. So this was for galaxies. And then at the end is putting the Milky Way and Andromeda to scale. They would have to walk very far. Um, actually not. We often think like galaxies are so big and so they must be very far apart. 
but you can fit 25 um, Milky Ways between us and Andromeda, which is not actually very far. And so because galaxies are much closer compared to their size, it's more likely for a galaxy to hit another galaxy. So versus, say, um, stars within galaxies, if you had, if the sun was a grapefruit in Washington, D.C., the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, would be a grapefruit in San Francisco. And so how many grapefruits can you fit between them? A whole lot. That is a wonderful visual. I love it. Yeah. Is there any other hands-on activities that you've been working on? Yeah. Um, so one of them is uh, galaxy cards. And so these are, each card has a galaxy on it. And um, uh, there are kind of a couple couple levels to that. And one of them is... You just give them to the participants, and they make up their own classifications. And and oftentimes they'll they'll get them into, um, you know, what astronomers use, uh, which is sort of the Hubble sequence, where we have ellipticals and spirals and irregulars. Um, but they'll often uh, get different, diff- slightly different categories, which is great because astronomers have different ways of classifying galaxies, and they don't all agree. And so it's it's about being able to support your answer. Um, and then um, I take it further and actually look at the different colors in the galaxies and how that can tell us about the stars that are within it, whether a young population of stars or an old population of stars. Right. And and also where in the galaxy is are those are those blue young bright stars? And so in the in the spiral arms. And so that's versus uh, the very centers of the of the spiral galaxies are more yellow, indicating an older population of stars. So that's. So, th- so we, we get into that um, with that activity. And then also um, another uh, couple activities that um, are fairly simple to do if you have your own uh, print- printing capabilities. Uh, one of them is a seek and find with the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. And so you have this Hubble Ultra Deep Field. Every little dot is a galaxy. And then um, we've put together kind of a, almost hidden pictures um, little finder sheet uh, to look for the ice cream galaxy. There's a little ice galaxy that looks like an ice cream cone. And then um, also another one uh, that I developed and is, is fairly simple is that um, Hubble picture puzzles. Uh, you, can, you can actually print off pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope website, cut them up. I, I generally put them on the foam, the foam back the sticky foam back that you can get at Michael's or craft stores and then cut them up and you have one that's not been cut. And um, those are actually, depending on your level, you can cut them into four big pieces or, <laughs> or, or 36 exact squares. And, you know, right. then. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome.
Okay, so I am here at the Northwest Astronomy Meeting with um, with Meredith Rawls. I think our listeners might remember her, Dr. Meredith Rawls now. Our listeners might remember her from Geek Girl Con 2015. And I just missed talking to her at 2016. We saw each other, but we couldn't talk. But I, ha- I have her here now at the meeting, and I wanted to um, um, have her talk to us about her work and also about Geek Girl Con and what she does there. So I'm going to let you introduce yourself again with what you do and, um, and talk about Geek Girl Con. Sure. Hi there. I'm Meredith Rawls, and I recently finished my PhD in astronomy uh, earlier this year in May down in New Mexico. So I'm now officially Dr. Rawls, which is kind of fun. And I started a postdoc at the University of Washington here in Seattle. And so I've been working there for just a couple of months. And that is mostly actually software development for astronomy with the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, or the LSST, which is this huge telescope they're building in Chile. So I do a combination of software development for that telescope and also some astronomy research, kind of continuing from my past interests about stars and neat stuff like that. Okay, we're going to get into LSST and, and, and stars. Great. That's very general. But, like, but I do want to talk about um, Geek Girl Con. So I saw you there last year, and you're dressed up as um, Captain Janeway, and I did not ask you enough questions, so I want to ask that now. Um, how long have you been doing outreach, and what do you love doing at Geek Girl Con, and what do you like about Geek Girl Con? Geek Girl Con, so I went last year, it was my first time there, and I think I just heard about it on Twitter, and I was like, that sounds neat. I'm originally kind of from the Northwest area, and I can get there without too much difficulty. And it was really, it felt kind of like a big family of all these people who were celebrating cool, fun, geeky stuff. I didn't have to know every single reference, but it was still a lot of fun to see everyone just so excited and authentically being themselves and having fun with one another. This year in particular, I got to be on a panel called The Worlds of Star Wars. So it was a whole bunch of astronomers uh, wearing their geeky astronomy attire in various fashions, all answering questions about how realistic or scientifically plausible is it to have different kinds of planets like they do in the Star Wars franchise. So things like planets with two suns or moons that are covered in trees, like a forest. We talked about like all this different kind of cool physics stuff because we actually are finding a lot of exoplanets in space and it turns out that Star Wars didn't get it too wrong. Uh, it's not, you know, there's, yeah, it, it was super lucky. It's not like, you know, back then in the 70s, like we didn't, we'd not detected any exoplanets. We didn't detect them until the 90s. And, but it turns out that we find these really wild systems where there's, you know, four stars and like these funny resonances with planets orbiting two of them and then all four of them and all these different configurations. So, so it's actually pretty realistic. And that was a lot of fun. I interviewed the rest of that panel actually. And I wanted, I asked a couple of the other women on the panel, what was the most um, interesting question that you got from the audience? But so I saw you in the DIY zone. My, my daughter has met you twice, actually three times now from this morning. And the, the last two times she's seen you making um, comments. So how do you make that comment? And what is the reaction of the, the kids that come to your table at the, the do-it-yourself science zone at Geek Girl Con? Yeah, so that's a really also awesome 
thing that I've gotten to be part of both this year and last year at Geek Girl Con, where we have a bunch of stations set up and there's science happening and kids and also adults can come and do experiments and hands-on science. So last year I led the comment activity almost for the entire two days and it was very exhausting but very awesome because we were constantly making these comments out of dirt and water and you put a little ammonia and then you put something sticky like a sugar or Coca-Cola or corn syrup to simulate organic material. And then to put it all together, you actually crush up dry ice and add it, and then you form a, a snowball kind of with, with gloves so you don't freeze burn your hands. Mm-hmm. And then you actually get a pretty realistic simulation of a comet at the end of it. So this year, because that was very physically <laughs> taxing, just for one person to do for two full days, yeah. we mixed it up a little bit. So I traded off uh, with my friend Nicole, who has also done the comet demo a bunch in the past. And we actually had kids make little take-home comets out of aluminum foil. So they were, we did, occasionally we would do a demo with the dry ice, the, full, the full-fledged comet like last year. But we would kind of show them that and pass it around, and then we would let them make their own version to take home that was just ribbon and yarn kind of taped together and then aluminum foil as the nucleus or head of the comet. Oh, cool. And then they could throw them across the room and have little comets. So, yeah, yeah it was a lot of fun. So listeners, check out our episode from last year's Geek Girl Con because you hear my daughter actually um, simulating the sounds that she heard from the comet. So she's like... And so you'll, you'll hear uh, my daughter do it's that. True. They make noise. They really do. They do. And she's like, it was like... But I want to bring us back to your research. And you said that you're, um, you are making and managing the software for LSST. And I want for our listeners, what is LSST and why is it so awesome? So LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, they're building it down in Chile. And it's, it's going to come online around 2022 and take pictures of the sky for a full 10 years, as often as possible. And so the idea is that we're, it's, it's huge. The mirror is over 8 meters in diameter. And it's, yeah, it's going to be so great. There's going to be so many images. It's going to be the largest well, it's going to be one of the largest telescopes. Yeah, it's, there's lots of little details we could get into there. But it's going to be one of the, the biggest survey endeavors because the way they're going to use the telescope is kind of unique. They're going to survey the entire night sky that you can see from Chile. So that's half of the full night sky you can see from anywhere on Earth. And they're going to have it so that every three nights you have a new image of every part of the sky. So basically over the course of 10 years, we're building up a high-definition movie of the full night sky, and we're going to be able to discover all kinds of new things that vary in the night, be that an asteroid that goes across an image, or be it an exploding star in a distant galaxy, and anything in between, we'll be able to study in much more detail than before. Is there any citizen science um, efforts that are related to LSST with, um, because I know that there's like the Zooniverse that happens where people can like look at galaxies. Is there going to be something like that for our listeners to go and, and actually contribute to data that's coming out of LSST? Sure. So one of the big goals for LSST is that once the data start coming in, we really want everyone to be able to take a look at it. It's not going to be you know, behind a paywall or secret or hidden or anything. And, and at the moment, the tools to, for that to happen are still in development, so it's not like fully polished yet. And I'm helping write some of the software that we kind of be behind the scenes to make it possible to access the data and different kinds of data and which particular elements of the images you're interested in. And I would not be surprised at all if there were a whole bunch more citizen science projects kind of like the Zooniverse coming out of that. But yeah, again, 2022 is, the, is when the data will start. Right. So check back around then. <laughs> well, that's actually not as far away as you think. I know. It's terrifying and amazing. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you for talking to me. Is there anything else you would like to add? But bef- actually, one thing I'm going to ask you, and this is what I asked everyone at Geek Girl Con, I just remembered um, since that was 
this month. Um, I asked them, if you were a superhero, what would be your superpower and what would be your origin story? If I had a superpower, I would be able to teleport because I am very tired of wanting to be in two places at once. Oh my god, that's the second person who said that. <laughs> well, that's because it's the best superpower. Yeah. And as an origin story, it would probably be because I was taking too many trains back and forth in a short span of time, and suddenly I would just appear in the other city and not know how it happened. Right. And it would be wonderful. Right. And some people might think it's like alien abduction, like time, what well, it was time loss, but you would know that it was actually your superpower. Yeah, and I wouldn't tell anyone. I would just be like, what do you mean? The train was early. It's fine. No, that's a, that's that's an awesome that's an awesome origin story. All right, thank you so much for talking to me, and I'm glad we I finally got to talk to you. For sure. For <laughs> All sure. right. This is Spark Science, and we'll be back again next week. Listen to us on 102.3 FM in Bellingham or KMRE.org. Streaming on Sundays at 5 p.m., Thursdays at noon, and Saturdays at 3 p.m. Thank you for joining us. We just interviewed awesome women at Seattle's Geek Girl Con. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com, or go to kmre.org and click on the podcast link. This is an all-volunteer-run show, so if you want to help us out, go to sparksciencenow.com and click on Donate. Today's episode was recorded on location in Seattle, Washington, and at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. Our producer is Regina Barb-DeGraff. The engineer for today's show is Natalie Moore. And a special thanks to Puyallup librarian Bonnie Svitoski and the organizers of Geek Girl Con. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Our feature song today was Mad Lib, Stepping Into Tomorrow. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us an email or post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I wrap, you think iodine, nitrate, activate. Red uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance with some balance that you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.